Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We've been going through the parables of Jesus, and we come to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in this text today. We're going to read beginning in verse 19 through to the end of uh, the chapter. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine, excuse me, let's pray before we do that. Father, just uh, pray that uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, you who wrote this word, uh, would come today, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would direct your word into the recesses of our hearts, that we might respond in a manner that is pleasing to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, beginning in verse 19, this is the word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And his ga- at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'll let you a little bit into the kitchen uh, where the meals of sermons are prepared to give you a little bit of an insight into a preacher's thought in preparing a sermon. It ought to be the specific uh, desire of every preacher in coming to the text and preparing it for presentation to God's people to answer one question predominantly, and that is, why does God have this text here, and how will its purpose be communicated to his people in this sermon? Or, if you will, more briefly, what's the purpose of this text? So I ask, that question this morning as we come to Luke chapter 16. What is the purpose of this parable? What is the point that Jesus is making? Well, the answer is found, as most often it is, in the conclusion. But let's first dismiss why Jesus didn't tell this parable, all right? So, two points to the sermon this morning, possible purposes and Jesus' purpose. So possible purposes, the reason why it's not being taught, and Jesus' purpose, why he's teaching it, all right? First thing, all right, 
Jesus' purpose in this parable is not to condemn the rich and to praise the poor. All right? That's not why Jesus is teaching this parable. Okay? The Bible is not opposed to wealth. The Bible is not opposed to rich people. Greg pointed out to me during the break in the services that though the rich man from Hades is addressing Abraham, Abraham was probably richer than the rich man. And of course, Greg is correctly right. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Job was a very wealthy man. And neither of them are condemned. As a matter of fact, the first thing we learn about Job, chapter 1, verse 1, is that he was a righteous man, even though he was very wealthy. So the Bible does not condemn wealth. It does not condemn rich people. On the other hand, neither does it praise poor people for being poor. All right? Um, this is the cry of many on the left end of the Christian spectrum in our day. Those that are leftists that have more in sympathy with Marxists than uh, Jesus. All right? Uh, and, of course, we hear a lot of this in woke ideology today. God is on the side of the poor, and God favors the poor, one thing or the other. I'd like you to see this for yourself. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Right in the middle is Psalms. Right after that is Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, the penultimate chapter in the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> Verse 8, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Why? Well, look, feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. Don't give me riches because I will think that I don't need you anymore. And that's a constant warning in the Bible, as we'll see. And yet, on the other hand, don't give me poverty. Why? Well, look at verse uh, 9. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. All right? God does not show partiality. If you're a good student of the Bible, you'll know that uh, in the book of Romans, for example, God, uh, Paul says God doesn't show partiality. He's not the God of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. God is not partial to the rich. God is not partial to the poor. God is not on the favor of uh, the Chinese and opposed to the Koreans. God doesn't love Dominicans and hate Puerto Ricans, all right? God doesn't show partiality. The ground is level at Calvary, all right? And God... Uh, as a God of justice, and justice doesn't show partiality. It's a very important point. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you, all right? There are many warnings about wealth and warnings about uh, poverty as well. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for example, uh, we read uh, this. If we have food and clothing, with these we, we, we will be content. It's a very important lesson, right? Paul in Philippians says, I've learned to be content. Contentment doesn't come with the snap of the fingers. Contentment doesn't come with being born again. Contentment doesn't come instantaneously. You have to learn it, all right? But Paul says, uh, uh, if I have food and clothing, I'm content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. All right, please note significantly, 
The problem is not money. The problem is not having money. The problem isn't being rich. The problem is the love of money. Alright? Sin in the Bible is not contained in things. Sin is not contained in money. Sin is not contained in alcohol. Sin is not contained in tobacco. Sin is not contained in movies or, or videos or whatever you want to call it. It's what our heart does with those things. God has given us all things freely to enjoy. And yet our hearts can take what a good God has graciously, kindness uh, blessed us with and distort them. So we can take money and we can have the love of money uh, distort it and destroy it, all right? But it isn't riches or poverty. Let's be clear on that, all right? Now, we should say, turning back to Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, uh, Luke chapter 16, there is a Deuteronomic twist here, all right? What do I mean by that? In Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus chapter 26, you don't have to turn there, you can look later, all right? God promises blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Many of the blessings which he promises for obedience are material blessings, all right? What the Jewish people did for that was they turned God into kind of a tit-for-tat God. If I do this, God will do that, all right? And they said, if we are... Uh, if we are faithful, God will bless us. That's true. If we're not faithful, God will curse us. That's true. But they turned that on its head. And they said, if I have material blessings, it's because God likes me. If I have riches, it's because God is in favor of me. God is with me. All right? So to a Jew, reading Luke chapter 16, that the rich man goes to hell is the twist in the story. That would have been the shock to any Jewish reader. That's why later on, when Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, you remember what the disciples' response was. Who then can be saved? Because they believed if a rich man is hard to be saved, it's because something is screwy. God is in favor of them because obviously he's rich. God has blessed him, therefore God favors him. God is with him. God is for him. That's not true. All right? And that's what we learn here. There's a Deuteronomic twist. The rich man goes to hell. It's the poor man who goes to Abraham's bosom or heaven. That would have been shocking to any Jew of Jesus' day. This is why the most important question, all right, that we're faced with when we open the Bible is who is God? Who is God? And we cannot make God into some kind of dispensing machine which often happens in health, wealth, and prosperity circles, right? Where if you put in the right prayer, or if you put in the right formula, or if you put in the right actions, God will give you this. It's not a tit-for-tat thing. That's why Job, all right, is where we learn about this. Job says uh, when uh, the devil goes before um, jo uh, God and says he only serves you because you bless him. Tit-for-tat, tit-for-tat. And God says, no, that's not it. That's why Job is a wisdom book. We learn that from Proverbs. God doesn't show partiality, all right? And that's very important. We need wisdom to correct the law and to properly understand it, and so that we have a correct understanding of who God is, all right? So, very important. 
God uh, doesn't condemn uh, the wealthy, doesn't condemn wealth, and he doesn't praise the poor. God does not show partiality. Second purpose, why Jesus didn't teach this uh, parable, is to promote or to uh, pronounce the reality of hell. All right? We read about that, of course, here uh, in verse 23. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And then in verse 24, he called out. Now, Jesus taught about hell more than any other subject. All right? Very interesting. The Lord of love taught most about the reality of hell. Okay? So it's certainly something that he talks about a lot. And when we look at verse 23, we see something about the reality of hell. It's a place of endless, eternal misery, torment, and woe. Look at verse 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. For all the times that Jesus taught about the reality of hell, this is the one time in the Gospels where we actually have an account of a person in hell telling us what it is like to be in hell. And it is a frightful picture. It's a frightful picture. There are only two destinies, either heaven or hell, both of which are mentioned in this parable. There's nothing in between, and there's nothing else besides that. One author said, we tend, we tend to think that the default destiny of all people is heaven, right? How many times do you hear this? Somebody dies, and it's like, oh, they're in heaven, right? Or they're happy now, or they're at peace now. Whatever. Well, not if they're not a Christian, Of course, people deceive themselves. So this author says, we tend to think the default destiny of all people is heaven, and that hell is reserved for particularly bad, wicked people. He goes on, he says, but in truth, our default destiny is hell, and heaven is reserved for those who have the honesty to admit it and look to Jesus Christ to spare them from the horrors of hell. Hell is not a popular topic, popular message. It's not one that ought to be taken lightly by preachers in the pulpit, as if you beat people up with it, and certainly don't want to scare people into heaven by preaching hellfire and damnation. But the fact is, it's a a reality. And though it's a frightful subject, it's also a merciful one. God is merciful to tell us about hell. Because we can't say that we've never been warned. God is a God of love and a God of justice. And his justice must be satisfied. We'll have more to look at in just a moment about this, but God's justice must be satisfied. And he says that the soul that sins, he must die. And the wages of sin is death. God doesn't grade on a curve. 
Nobody gets to the pearly gates and says, well, I tried my best. And God says, okay, I, I got it, right? No, God is a God of justice and sin must be punished. And the marvel of the gospel is that God in love sent his son to pay the penalty for those who deserve death. I deserve death. I deserve nothing from God but endless punishment, misery, torment, and woe in hell. But God in love sent his son to die in my place so that I might be spared the horrors of hell. And of course the marvel of the gospel is that God satisfies the demands of his own justice in punishing sin and sinners in the person of his son instead of those who deserve it. And takes what you and I lack, which is a perfectly obedient life, the life that Jesus lives and gives it to us when we look to him, turn to him, and trust in him. So that both God is loving and just. Or as Paul says, he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But, coming back to my point, Jesus didn't teach this parable to teach the reality of hell, although the reality of hell is certainly found here. Which brings us then to what is Jesus' purpose? Well, I said it's found in the conclusion. Look at the text. Verse 29 through 31. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's the purpose for which Jesus teaches this parable? The purpose is the necessity and the sufficiency of the word of God that contains the message to escape from hell, the message of salvation. That's the point that Jesus is making. The rich man is in hell because in life he ignored, he neglected, he disregarded Moses and the prophets and the message of salvation which is found in Moses and the prophets. Think with me of Moses and the prophets just in a brief scan and review. We go back to Genesis, as we often do. Genesis chapter 2. God gave to Adam and Eve every tree in the garden. said, you may eat from any tree in the garden but one. You may not eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Right? And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. What, was, what did God require of Adam and Eve? Perfect obedience. Punishment for disobedience. And what do we see? Adam and Eve ate. And they were separated from God, they were separated from each other, they were separated from the creation, and now thorns and thistles infest the ground, right? As a result of their sin, and sin has come upon every human descendant from Adam and Eve. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. God had to bring, remember what Adam and Eve tried to do? They tried to get fig leaves. They were hiding from God. That's what all of us try to do. We try to get the fig leaves of our good works. Oh, I'm not any worse than the next person. 
Oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, but I help old ladies across the street and I give money to the Red Cross and fig leaves, fig leaf religion. God said, no, 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 no. You need blood. Why blood? Because there needs to be death. There needs to be punishment. And God killed an animal and brought them animal skins, the result of that dead death, to cover their nakedness. It's a picture of the gospel. Pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who would die in the place as a substitute and as a sacrifice in the place of sinners who would hide their sin by his shed blood. We get to Exodus 12. Look at Exodus 12. Look, just look at a couple of these things with me. Exodus 12. You're a good student of the Bible. You'll know that Exodus 12 is the exodus from Egypt. Egypt is in bondage and slavery in Egypt uh, under Pharaoh. They're in misery. They're crying out to the Lord. God comes and he's going to promise to deliver them. And uh, he's going to bring plagues on Egypt. And the last plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God, uh, at the institution of the Passover, all right, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is going to bring the plague, and everyone is going to die. Israelite, Egyptian alike, the firstborn of the household is going to die. But God provides a lamb. If you kill the lamb and take the blood and put it on the lintel and the doorpost of the house, when the angel of death flies over, when he sees the blood that covers your household, he will pass over and will not bring judgment and death upon the firstborn. Because the blood of God's own firstborn son, Jesus Christ, is sacrificed. And when God sees his blood, over any individual, he passes over and does not bring judgment because the penalty has already been paid. The blood has been shed. We get to Leviticus. Look at Leviticus 17, verse 11. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 17, verse 11. I'm trying to show you here Moses and the prophets, right? Moses and the prophets. Leviticus 17, 11. Leviticus 16, 17 is talking about Yom Kippur, the high holy day of the Jewish people, which is coming soon uh, on our calendar. <clears throat> and we're told that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God is a God of justice. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it must die. There needs to be death. There needs to be a penalty paid. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement. Atonement literally means covenant, covering for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It's the sacrifice that dies in the place of the sinner that deserves it. And the blood of the sacrifice covers the sinner's sins so that God accepts the death of the sacrifice in the place of the sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Look at Isaiah chapter 53. We've seen Moses. Let's look at the prophets. This is the whole message of the Old Testament, as we'll see in a moment. Isaiah chapter 53. This passage is so explicit, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say this a million times, that Jewish people, when Isaiah 53 is read in the synagogue, when they, Isaiah is read in a synagogue today, they skip over Isaiah 53, because so clearly is it pointing to Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He, a person... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men had their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice the language here. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was this chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are, we are healed. Verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So clearly is it talking about Jesus Christ who bore the sins of his people when he went to the cross of Calvary and in his place condemned, he's in their place condemned he stood and sealed their pardon with his blood. Look at Luke chapter 24, turning back to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 24, last passage. Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus has risen from the dead. He meets his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Remember when John the baptizer saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that the Passover was talking about. He's the one who's the substitute. He's the one who's the sacrifice. He's the one who's come, sent by God, gifted by God to take away the sins of the world. And all Moses and the prophets are talking about Jesus. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is a Hebraism, a Jewish way of referring to the Bible. The Bible has, in, in the Jewish Bible, there are three separate sections. There's the law, the Tanakh, there's the, uh, uh, the prophets, the Ketuvim, and there are the writings, all right? And uh, the Tekelim. So uh, he's talking about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Tanakh. All right, Everything in them must be fulfilled about him. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written. Where? In Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the writings. The whole of the scriptures of the Old Testament. That the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now what I want you to see in this just brief survey 
of Moses and the prophets and Jesus telling us what Moses and the prophets are teaching is this is what the rich man ignored. He disregarded it. He ignored it. He paid no attention to it. Until in hell he cried out for mercy. And Abraham had to say, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. They have everything that's necessary. They have the message of salvation from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers to Deuteronomy to all the prophets, to all the Psalms, to all the writings, Proverbs. Every book of the Bible is talking about how one can find an escape from hell through the blood of a sacrifice and a substitute that God in love has provided. That's what the rich man ignored. That's what he neglected. That's what he disregarded. And that's why he's in hell. Listen, there's nobody in heaven who deserves to be there. Nobody. Nobody. When God... When somebody appears before the Lord and God asks, why should I let you in? Nobody can say to God, well, I did so-and-so, or I was so-and-so, or I went so-and-so, or I spoke so-and-so. No, nobody. There's nobody in heaven that deserves to be there. It's only because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that anybody enters heaven. Conversely, there's nobody in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. Fernando and Catherine and I were out, we're evangelizing in Central Park a week or so ago, and we have to come up with quick, quick retorts to what people say. Because people pass by and say, you know, Fernando's always, how would you answer this question? What's your only comfort in life and in death? Try to grab somebody's attention. Free books, free books. Come on, free, free, free. If it's free, it's for me. Come see a book. We're giving away Bibles, Gospels of John, one thing or the other, right? Somebody says, hey, no, I'm good. What's the retort? If you were good, I wouldn't need to be here. (laughs) I took a stab one day. I asked Fernando and Catherine if I was being obnoxious. They said I wasn't. Somebody said, oh, I'm good. In other words, I don't need what you're trying to give me. I said, good people go to hell. Good people go to hell. Nobody in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. couple of points in conclusion this morning. If you're open to chapter 16, if not, turn back there. Luke 16, verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, that is from Abraham's bosom to hell, may not be able, and none may cross from there, Hades, to Abraham's bosom in heaven. What's the point? There's no second chance. There's no second chance. That's what the rich man's asking for, right? 
No second chance. Only fearsome finality. The author of Hebrews says, it's given unto man once to live, once to die, and then the judgment. Secondly, look at verses 24 and 25. And then he called out, and notice this, Father Abraham. Rich man was Jewish. Abraham is considered one of the patriarchs. Even Christians refer to Abraham as the father of all believers, right? Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child. Abraham refers to him as a child. What are we talking about here? The rich man was a child of the covenant. He was a covenant child. He could rightly call upon Abraham as Father Abraham. There's a myth popular amongst many Jewish people that they will be saved from the horrors of hell because they're Jewish. Many believe that Abraham is at the mouth of hell and when God throws people down, Abraham is there with the sheet and bounces them back up to heaven simply because they're Jewish. But what do we learn? What we learn, all right, is nobody gets into heaven because of lineage, because of family, because of race. Salvation is of grace, not race. Boys and girls, this is the last opportunity I have to preach to you, young people, all right? or at least preach to you as your pastor. Hopefully I'll be preaching at some point, but preach to you as your pastor, all right? You will not escape hell and go to heaven because of your parents or your grandparents or because you're any particular nationality or race or because you warmed a pew. Don't make that mistake. Don't be like the rich man thinking that because you're a covenant child, you're in like Flint. No. You need to believe. You need to turn from sin. You need to trust in Jesus for yourself. Not because your parents or your grandparents did. Thirdly, look at verse 30 and 31. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The response, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. This tells us something very important about the human, sinful, sinful human heart. It tells us that man's problem, women's too, of course, man's problem is not intellectual. Man's problem is moral. People don't need more information. People don't need more proofs. They don't need evidence that demands a verdict. Why? Because Jesus says, through Abraham, they won't be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Their problem is not up here. Their problem is in here. One author said this, 
If there were a miracle of some sort, a skeptic thinks, then I'd believe. Then have in mind the voice from heaven, a mighty work of power, a healing, or a resurrection. Then I'd have proof. Then I'd believe, they claim. Jesus, through the voice of Abraham, says it isn't so. It's never been so. Did Israel believe when God visited the plagues on Egypt? How about when he parted the Red Sea? You ever think of that? Huh. These, these crazy Israelites. Man. God brings them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, brings them to the brink of the Red Sea. They're looking, there's the Red Sea. <laughs> where are we going to go now? Uh, there's Pharaoh's army. Oh, we're dead, right? And God parts the Red Sea, and they pass through on dry ground. Not on impotent feet trying to walk on wet sand. No, no, no. Dry ground. Then the, the Pharaoh's army comes and God brings the Red Sea and drowns them all. What do they do when they get to the other side? Have an idolatry feast. How hard-hearted can you be? How thick? They say thick like a mick. No, thick like an Israelite. No, that whole generation had to die in the wilderness. Did Israel believe when God sent fire down on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18? How about when Elijah was taken up into heaven on a chariot of fire? Closer to home, how about when Jesus walked on water, fed the 5,000, raised the dead? Were any of those mighty acts convincing? Not to those who were determined not to believe. The human mind is remarkably adept at finding excuses for unbelief. Answer one objection and the ground will shift elsewhere. Miracles will not convince those whose hearts are morally blind and unrepentant. Answer the historic objections. Those of the virgin birth, Noah's Ark, Jonah and the fish, the resurrection, the ground will shift to the moral. What about the problem of evil? Why would a good God allow so much suffering? Answer those objections. The ground shifts to the religious. Oh, why are there so many denominations? How can you say that other religions are wrong? Answer those. And then the question why the church is full of hypocrites is raised. On and on it goes. J.C. Ryle noted the same reasons for unbelief back in the 19th century. Quote, J.C. Ryle, It is not more evidence that is wanted in order to make men repent, but more heart and will to make use of what they already know. The problem is not intellectual. It's moral. Which brings me to my fourth point. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, it's not because you heard a compelling, convincing argument. It's not because you attended uh, a, a seminar. It's not because you had some long, protracted, apologetic discourse with somebody who was knowledgeable and learned in apologetic methods. Why? Because Jesus says so. They won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If you're a Christian and you've turned from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven and to escape hell, it's because of a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, who gave you eyes to see, who gave you ears to hear, who struck your heart with supernatural power to make it beat with new life in Jesus Christ. Be perpetually thankful to God. God did that. God gave you eyes. 
God gave you ears, or else you'd still be lost. Which brings me to my final point. Jesus can say this because, of course, he went on to the cross to be crucified in the place of sinners and three days later to rise from the dead. And Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen. He's reigning now, today. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. Do not make the mistake of the rich man. Ignore, disregard, neglect my word. Today, if you hear his voice, turn from sin. Turn to him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked. Flee to thee for dress, helpless, cling to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word which cuts through all the nonsense of so much verbiage and so many excuses to confront us with ultimate realities and all the answers needed for ultimate questions. Help us, Father, to hear you, to look to you, to trust in you. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.